Welcome to Rockbrook Church Podcast. We love our community and want to show the love of Christ tangibly in our neighborhoods, workplaces, and homes. This summer, we will discover how serving can make a difference in our community, how serving makes an impact for God and grows our faith in a series called Why I Serve. We would love to hear from you and how God is using this message to give you new perspective and hope. Email your story to church at rockbrook.org. Well, we're definitely not taking the summer off at Rockbrook. No way, no how. Uh, thanks for being here today. Love that you came out to church today on this beautiful summer weekend and uh, all the people going through uh, the, a place to serve study. That's just been awesome uh, to hear about how that's been impactful in your life. You can still pick that up and start that uh, today. It's not too late. Uh, we're leading up to a serve day on July 14th. I uh, love seeing your projects of what you're uh, submitting and people signing up for projects. Amazing opportunities to uh, serve your community uh, this uh, July 14th. That's Saturday. You can go to rockbrook.org serve and sign up for a serve project. Check it out. It's pretty cool. And uh, we're talking about serving in the weekend services. I've uh, been enjoying this series. The first week we talked about God's love for us. And we talked about the first duty, our first duty as a Christian is not to do anything. It's to enjoy a relationship with God and see our relationship as a son or a daughter. That was maybe the most important sermon I've ever preached. In fact, I, it's the first time I considered coming back the next weekend and preaching the exact same message word for word so everyone would hear it and get it. Um, but then we've just been talking about how that affects different areas of our life. So last week it was fatherhood. And, uh, and relationships that way. And this week, I want to talk about something that seems like a contradiction. Seems like, Ryland, why would you put that in the serving series? Doesn't that belong in like some other type of series? And uh, I want to show you today that it's really no contradiction at all. When you first hear me say that we're talking about leadership in the serving series, you might say, well, how does that go, how does that go together? Those seem like two opposite ideas, two contradicting ideas, and they may seem that way on the surface, but when we see what the Bible has to say about leadership and how God leads us, so we're Jesus followers. It means we're being led. How does Jesus lead us? How does Jesus lead us? And one of the things that we don't look to the Bible for enough is leadership and leadership principles. Because we tend to think of the Bible as in the past, and that's historical, and that's in the past, and it helps me spiritually, but does it help me in my cutting-edge life with problems I'm dealing with at work and in my family and in my friendships and my Monday through Friday life? But Jesus was an incredible leader. Jesus was an incredible leader. He was more than a leader. Yes, he was the savior of the world and he set a perfect example for us, but he was a leader with a following. And that following went on to carry his mission and his vision and what he led them to do. And so we're going to look at a passage today in one of the places where Jesus just unpacks what, leader, what it means to be a leader, what it means to be a Christian leader. And it has everything to do with why I serve. And so let's look at a passage in Mark's gospel today. Now, Mark was written by a guy named Mark, it, and it, uh, he wasn't one of the 12 disciples. He was a follower of Jesus, obviously, um, and was, uh, had investigated uh, Christ's life and the claims of Christ, but a lot of scholars believe that this is actually Peter's account, and Mark wrote it down. 
So Peter shared these things with Mark, and Mark recorded it. Uh, but he wasn't one of the 12 disciples. This is an account from Peter, probably. And this passage starts in Mark 10. And let me tell you what happens right before this. So before we get what's in, in your notes, let's talk about what's leading up to this. Jesus, this is following an encounter where Jesus uh, has the 12 disciples with him and then a bunch of other people following him and the 12. And as they're out someplace someone walks by, comes by, and comes to Jesus. And uh, the Bible tells us that he was young, rich. He was a person of influence and affluence. He was a young, rich ruler. And he comes up to Jesus in the midst of this crowd and the disciples, and he says, what can I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And Jesus gives him uh, what people had understood to be what you must do to be saved. You've got to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And follow the commandments. And he highlights some of the commandments. And the guy says, I've done these. I've done that. And then it says Jesus looks at the man and just has a profound love and compassion for the guy. Just looks at him and he, he loves this guy. And then it says it looks into his heart, meaning he's looking at this guy's personal, real issues. I wonder what Jesus would see if you look into my heart and your heart. And all the different personal issues that we have in our life that we come together with today. And he looks at this guy's heart and he says, here's what else you must do to be saved. You must sell all your possessions and give it all to the poor. Why would Jesus say this to this guy? Because he looked into this guy's heart and said, this heart has a, this money has a stronghold on this guy's life and on this guy's heart. And if he can't break that stronghold, he, how could he be saved? And the disciples are just in awe and everyone's kind of amazed and they're like, who could make it into the kingdom of God? Who could have a relationship with you, who could fulfill these requirements? And they were so amazed at what was happening. And Jesus turns to the 12 disciples and he encourages them. And he says, you guys are doing it. You've given up everything to follow me. And he encourages them. And it says the crowd behind them is just freaking out because they're like, well, what can we do to meet this guy's demands? And I think the lesson there is that sometimes we think following Jesus is going to be easy that we think it's not going to cost us anything personally. That yeah, there's this prayer to pray and there's these kind of generic things. When in reality, Jesus comes in and calls us out of something that impacts us to our core, personally and individually. And it's difficult. It's hard. And the disciples would see people walk away. And the crowd's overwhelmed with fear because, I mean, the Jesus essentially says no to this guy. The guy wouldn't, wouldn't do it. He wouldn't meet the requirement. And there's a cost to it, and it's difficult. And that's where we start in this passage in verse 32, is now they're on their way. So after this, what just happened, now they're on their way to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And the disciples were filled with awe, and the people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. 
People overwhelmed with fear because they're like, how could I meet this guy's demands? And the disciples are just in awe. It was amazing. We're following Jesus. We're all in. He just encouraged us. And they're continuing down the road. And then Jesus takes the, the 12 disciples aside. And Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him. So he'd done this before. He'd pull them aside occasionally and tell them what's going on, and, and that's what he's doing. Now he's pulling them away from the rest of the group, and he's having a dream team huddle, okay? He's having a crucial conversation, and he pulls this guy, these guys aside, and he just gets real serious and has this conversation where he says, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed by the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. And they will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. Jesus is having this tough conversation with his disciples. And the message is even more intense here because leading up to this time, there was times of threat of arrest or things would happen and they would get away and God would open up a door to extend this mission and for them to do what they were doing a little bit longer. But he's saying, guys, that's not going to keep happening. This is coming to an end. And he just lays out this scene where it's bad. And not only bad, it's devastating. He says, I'm going to be tortured and I'm going to be killed and Jesus is just bearing his soul to these guys and in verse 35 then James and John the sons of Zebedee came over and spoke to him teacher they said we want you to do us a favor what time out I mean he just bared his soul to I mean this is like when you're talking to your kids and you just get down and you're having this teachable moment and it's real serious and you're just like laying it all out there and you get done or you're in Rockbrook for kids and you rehearse the whole thing and you get down on their level and you're just nailing it and it's awesome and it's great and you get to the end and they say, what's that thing on your face? <laughs> what? Like what? Or like you're sharing the problem that you've got with a friend and you're just like, taking off the mask and you're revealing what's going on you're sharing this big problem they're like well let me tell you my problem like, you think that's a problem let me tell you what what I've got going on but Jesus is more than gracious here he says what is your request they replied when you sit on your glorious throne we want to sit in places of honor next to you one on your right and the other on your left and the disciples are still under the assumption at this point that Jesus at some point is going to take off this, this robe of humility, this teacher robe, this rabbi robe, this spiritual robe, and he's going to take on the robe of a king and in, his, in the flesh right now be the king of Israel. And they want to make sure that when he steps into that place of authority that they have a place close to the king that they want to sit on his right and his left, and they want to be in positions of authority, and they want, they want the ability to have some authority and, authority and be identified with Jesus when he does this. That he's saying, okay, something's coming to an end. Things are about to go down. Jesus, make sure you remember us. Make sure you remember us. And Jesus is going to continue on and just flat out say, you guys don't know what you're asking. You 
you think you can do what I'm about to do? You think you can go through and endure what I'm about to go through and endure? In verse 41, when the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. Yeah, how could, how could James and John be so insensitive that Jesus just bears his soul and they come in and ask for something? No, 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 no. They were indignant not because James and John were insensitive. They were indignant because, whoa, 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 we want some authority too. There are 12 disciples, not just two. We need like 12 sides around Jesus of places of authority. We need a whole cabinet of power and authority. And I just imagine that while Mark, when he was recording this down, he looks up at Peter and says, you said what? Like, what were you thinking? And Peter says, I don't know what we were thinking. This is not, I mean, but that's what we were doing. That's what we thought was going to happen. And so Jesus called them together, and he says, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. And essentially, he lays out to them, you know what authority looks like in our culture. You know what the Romans do to the people under their authority. You know what the religious leaders do. You know what the Jewish leaders do. You know what they're like, and they lord and flaunt their authority over those under them. You know how this system works, and the system they have is still the system we have today. Where if you have a position of authority, you have people under your authority, and they serve at your benefit, right? Because because if you could do it all, you wouldn't need them. But because you can't do it all, you've got to have some people to help you do it. But if really, if you could do it all, you would just do it. So you need them, though, to, to help you do it. And so they serve at what benefit? At your benefit. I've got a diagram here of just a simple organizational chart of what leadership looks like in our culture. And there's you, and the people under you are for you. And the people under them are ultimately for you because as they make that person look better, they make you look better, and it just goes up the chain, and it's all for your benefit and he says the leaders of this world rule over others for their benefit and it's just all about them it's all about you and I don't know what your context in leadership is today but you have one you have influence over someone you have influence over someone's life you're their leader You might say, well, I'm not a leader. I don't have a leadership title at work. I don't have a leadership position at work, so this message really isn't for me. But we all lead someone. We have people looking to us, and we speak into people with our actions. We have authority. You know, if you're a teacher, you have authority over a classroom. If you're a a parent, you have authority over a family. If you're a manager or a division leader or a team leader or a supervisor, You have authority over someone. Maybe it's just the seniority that you've gained over time. Maybe it's just the influence that you have of people looking up to you. If you're a coach or a politician or in the military, you have people under your authority. And we all kind of live in this structure because this is the way leadership is seen in our world. But what's fascinating is how you gained this leadership was through being an amazing servant. 
Okay, people who get promoted at work are the people who are amazing servants. And they took the mission and the vision of that company, of that workplace, of that shop. They took the values of that organization and they took them personally. And what happened? They started getting promoted and it started to get them more influence and more power and more authority. And the, that's how we get the leadership in our world. Is that you're amazing at serving people. Who becomes teachers? People who love students. Who become nurses and doctors and technicians? People who love and care for other people. People go into political office to make a difference, to serve. People go into ministry to serve. People join the military to serve. People become pastors because they have a heart of a servant. People go into coaching because they love developing and serving people. People who get promoted in the workplace are the ones who served at the the vision and the values and the mission. People who have a family have a family because they wanted people they could love and serve. But what happens over time is service becomes serve us. Service becomes serve me. And we say, I've been serving and giving my life to this company. It's time they give up something for me. I was there when that kid was just a helpless little baby and I was serving that baby and it's now time my kids serve me. And service becomes serve us. And we begin to lord our leadership over others. And Jesus says in verse 43, but among you, it it will be different. Christians are going to be different. Because whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. Jesus took this whole leadership structure and flipped it upside down. The one that they operated in, the one that they knew, the one that they knew how it worked, and Jesus flipped the whole thing upside down and he says, no, for you it's going to be different. For you it will be different. If you want to lead, if you want to be great, if you want to be first, keep serving. Be a servant. If you want to be first, you must be a slave. And it sounds like a contradiction. How does that even work? What does that even look like? How does anything get done? Like, that's what every leader in the room is thinking. Well, how does stuff get done? Like, how do we get the cars fixed? And how do we have a good shop? And how do we get this project done? And how does our family come together and do this thing? And what Jesus is not arguing against is he's not arguing against point leadership. He's not arguing against someone being in charge. He's not arguing against things getting done. Okay, Jesus was in charge. He was the point leader for 12 disciples who had roles and responsibilities and he disciplined them when they didn't do what was expected. He had people under him with with different responsibilities. He wasn't fighting against the structure and he wasn't fighting against getting things done. God gets things done. Okay, I mean, Jesus had three years to fulfill a mission and a vision and he did it and everyone in that area, I mean, it, it infiltrated that area. And 2,000 years later, billions of people have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. That doesn't just happen. That takes leadership. That takes followers of Jesus who are willing to get things done. And it's not that Jesus is against leadership. 
but he has a specific way we're to use that leadership, that authority, that power, that influence. And if we get it right, it changes the culture of our workplaces, of our families, changes the culture of our relationships. Because if you're for you, if the leader is for themselves, who does everyone under that leadership have to be for? If you as the leader are for you, who does everyone under your influence have to be for? If the leader is for themselves, everyone under the leader has to be for themselves too. Because no one's looking out for them. And if the leader is for themselves, everyone is for themselves because you're afraid of getting thrown under the bus. You're worried about your position and your influence. And if the leader is for themselves, the other leaders have to be for themselves and the leaders under them have to manipulate to gain influence and authority and promotion. But when the leader is for others, it allows the other people under that influence to be for others as well because they don't have to watch their back. There's someone looking out for them. And that's how it radically changes the culture of a family. Maybe you're in a family that everyone's for themselves. And because the leader's for themselves, everyone has to be for themselves. So you're in a family that's full of gossip and, and, and everyone's looking out for themselves and watching their own back. Maybe you're in a workplace that says everyone's just for themselves. But if someone would be for someone else, it would change the culture of that workplace. Here's the big idea and what Jesus was teaching, how we can remember it today. If you're taking notes, write this in. Here's the way to say this and remember it. Here's what we are to do as leaders. As leaders, we're going to leverage our authority for the benefit of those under our authority. Leverage your authority for the benefit of those under your authority. And whatever that position God has put you in, whatever influence you have, you can leverage that influence, that authority for the benefit of those around you. What, do, what does this look like? Any authority we've been given is supposed to be for the benefit of those around us. So what are some practical things that we can do, like things we could do this week? Two things you can start doing this week that are going to change the game. And you can take these two principles and you can instill them as you leverage your authority, authority for the benefit of those under your authority. And this can make a big impact. The first one is a question. It's a question for you to ask the people around you and the people under your influence. And that question is simply this. What can I do to help? What can I do to help? Imagine if your boss or your leader or your manager sat down across from you and said, what can I do to help? Imagine if your parent sat down across from you and said, what can I do to help? What can I do to set you up for success? Imagine if your coach did that. And maybe you say, I, I've got a godly boss or godly leaders in my life who listen to me and have my best interests at heart, and I've got a godly boss who always pays me on time and creates a great environment for me, and gossip isn't tolerated, and yes, the work is hard, but they're leveraging their authority for the benefit of those under their authority. They're, they're not just looking out for themselves. Maybe you say, I, I wish I had that. In fact, I can think of all these leaders in my life. I wish we're here today to hear this message. But here's the problem. If all we do is apply this message to somebody else, nothing ever changes. 
What I have to do today and what you have to do today is say, how can this impact me? And ask, what can I do to help? What can I do to help? What if you ask the people under your leadership this question? What if you ask your spouse, what can I do to help? It's not groundbreaking, but if we intentionally do it, it sets us in the right place in our authority, and our authority becomes the benefit of others. It's not groundbreaking, but it will begin, begin to change a culture. The second one is this, and it's more of a principle to build, it, to build into your life. It's a, more of a principle of a way to see your leadership, and I'll, I'll give it to you, and then I'll explain it. But that is to leverage our authority for the benefit of those under our authority. We're going to look for opportunities to do for one what we wish we could do for everyone. Look for opportunities to do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. You know what one of the things that can hold me back in my leadership so much? Trying to be fair. Trying to be fair trying to treat all the people under my leadership, under my influence, under my report, exactly the same. I'll think, well, if I can't do it for everyone, I'm not gonna do it for anyone. And I'll end up holding something back that would benefit someone else greatly. But no, I'm gonna try uh, to get, uh, uh, I can't get everyone, but I'm gonna get at least somebody today. Jesus did this, okay? Jesus was not fair. He had 12 disciples, hundreds of people at a time following him. He had 12 he'd pull aside and give them information that no one else had. And you know what? Within those 12, there were really three that got close to Jesus. Like there were only a few taken up to the Mount of Transfiguration. There were only a few that were close enough to get to hear the actual prayers Jesus would pray to God. He would do for one what he wished he could do for everyone. And maybe, I don't know what that is in your context. Maybe you can't take everyone to the conference or the trip or to that experience, but don't let that keep you from building into someone. But in life, you can't serve everyone. You can't, you can't meet everyone's hunger, but you can meet someone's hunger. You can't serve all of your neighbors, but you can meet a need of one of your neighbors. You can't adopt every orphan, but church, there are families in here who could adopt an orphan. You can't do it for everyone, but you can do it for somebody. You can't meet every need, but you can meet a need. This is how we make a difference. We all do for one what we wish we could do for everyone, and we serve where we can and how we can. And as a leader, it, it, it may be a piece of equipment that someone needs. Maybe it's with your children that you're trying to treat all of your children identically the same. But they're different people with different personalities in a different season of life that your, your family is in. And you're going to do for one what you wish you could do for all. Don't let trying to be fair paralyze your serving. Don't let trying to be fair paralyze your leadership. Don't, don't trade fairness for selfishness. I, I don't want to hold something back and say, because I can't do it for everyone, I'm just going to rob everyone of the blessing. 
No, God's called me to bless and to serve and to use my authority for the benefit of those under my authority. And I'm going to do for one what I wish I could do for everyone. So what does this look like in your life? In your friend group, in your sphere of influence, in your family, in your business, if you systematically did for one what you wish you could do for all? It flips the structure upside down. It's not them for the benefit of you, it's you for the benefit of them. And that's the way God calls us to lead. That's the way God asks us to leverage our authority for the benefit of those under our authority. That's how it changes the culture. It's the culture of Christianity, not everyone looking out for themselves, but us looking out for one another. And we end up preaching the gospel every single day. Through our actions, we're pointing people, we're saying uh, Christians line up with what Jesus teaches. And Jesus did this in the ultimate way. This is where this passage ends up. It's amazing. He says, for even the Son of Man, no one's exempt from it, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. If anyone deserved to come and be served, it's God. He deserves it. Jesus took on human flesh. He took on the human jersey and he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He came to give himself completely for us. He didn't just instruct it, he lived it out. And the sacrifice put this perfect bow around this perfect ribbon that says, I love you and I care about you and I want you to spend eternity with me. So I'm going to leverage the authority and power I've been given for the benefit of those under my authority. I'm going to use the power and glory and authority and influence and I'm going to leverage it for the benefit of you. And all he requires of us is that we accept it by faith. If you haven't done that, I want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. Let's pray together. Would you bow your heads? And you might just pray something like this. God, thank you for loving me. And I admit that I need you. I'm a sinner separated from you. And our relationship is broken. But my desire today and the cry of my heart is to have a relationship with you. So I put my faith in you, that it's real. You came. You lived a perfect life. You died on the cross in my place. And you rose from the dead. And God, I invite your Holy Spirit to live inside of me. Change me. Make me more like you. God, we invite you to just search us. Show us where our ego has grown. Show us where pride has grown. God, you know when we set out on this path to have this family, to, to have this job, to, to serve in this way, it was with the heart of a servant. We don't want to lose it. We don't want to just live for the benefit of us, but we want to live for the benefit of those around us. And we want to leverage what you've given us in life for the benefit of other people. Our life is yours. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We would love for you to get connected to what's going on at Rockbrook Church. Visit us online at rockbrook.org for service times, small group information, and other ways you can discover your purpose here on earth.